So we are making our way through this topic that you can see, the collision of identity, culture, and control. And what I'm going to share with you tonight, I think will help you to understand what you are observing right now uh, on these hearings about uh, the January 6th um, attack on the Capitol. And I think as we make our way through the remainder of this material that I'm putting together for this, a lot of lights should probably go on as to why certain parts of our culture are reacting the way that they are. And we're gonna introduce ourselves to a number of different movements and personalities all kind of coming together um, in and around our own lifetimes now. So what we have done is we have been talking a little bit about the making of the modern world. And I understand that this study is more historical than it is biblical in nature, but there is some references that we are drawing upon to help us understand that this has always been a problem. Understanding how to navigate culture that has been conditioned by the times that we live in. So we have basically been talking a little bit about uh, God, humanity, and we will talk a little bit about earth in the weeks ahead. We talked about the pre-modern era, which has two main influences, uh, the papacy, that is the ecclesiastical authority, and that tension that went on with the political authorities, primarily kings at that time. All of that was interrupted by the Reformation, the Renaissance, and the Enlightenment. And so what we have been talking about a little bit uh, over the last week or so has been about the scientific revolution, how the Bible intersects with that, and how it has caused a reaction by certain sectors of Christianity. Tonight, we're not going to elaborate a lot on this, but one thing that kind of works in parallel with it is the Industrial Revolution, and I think it'll play into the whole um, shaping of the generation that came through a couple world wars and uh, has influenced our culture, and it has even influenced the tagline of a couple of um, presidential bids in terms of make America great again. In other words, let's go back to a, a time previous uh, that seems to have been lost. And I think it'll make a lot more sense tonight after we look at some of the personalities that are involved. Uh, so how we'll end this study is we're going to end up talking a little bit about the economic and e ecological crisis that has caused certain global problems. But tonight in particular, we're going to talk about the equality crisis. So we're sitting kind of right here on this study in between the modern and postmodern era. So we've used a couple of other slides and we have talked a little bit about American culture in particular. And we've talked a little bit about the American dream, talked a little bit about the Protestant work ethic and uh, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. So last week we left off uh, by an introduction through a video that I showed you from Kristen Cobes Dumais. Uh, she's a professor up at Calvin University up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And a couple of years ago, she wrote this uh, book called Jesus and John Wayne, 
it hit the New York Times bestseller list because what it did is it went back in time and kind of chronicled how we came to this crisis where uh, Christianity, in spite of the values that they claimed that they held, could vote for a presidential candidate that was the antithesis of those values. And, um, and so we watched that. And if you didn't get a chance to see it, you, it's up on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. You can catch that. I think it's very interesting. Well, what I want to do in the next couple of weeks is I want to pull some threads out of this particular book. And the threads that I want to talk about in particular are going to be about the development of some of the key thoughts and people that have shaped um, primarily evangelicalism. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how evangelicalism emerged in the course of history and how it kind of has shaped a particular subculture and then on beyond the subculture to the idea of uh, certain heroes that have been lifted up that have kind of shaped an entire outlook of life. So that's the idea here. Uh, so let me introduce this, first of all, by a passage of scripture that is quite interesting to me. And I, I, uh, I want you, if you have your Bible, to turn open to the book of Joshua. And I want you to come to chapter five. Joshua chapter five. So now the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. They're making their way toward a promised land. And this promised land was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham back in the book of Genesis. A whole generation has died off. And now there's a new generation that's going to enter into the promised land. They need to get circumcised <laughs> to honor the Abrahamic covenant. So that's the first part of chapter five. There's, they are at a place called Gilgal where all the men are circumcised. And this is right before they're gonna march into Jericho. And at the end of chapter five, there's this strange paragraph. It says in verse 13, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up. And he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? That's a key question to keep in mind. Are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer is neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then chapter six goes on to talk about the invasion into Jericho. So this strange paragraph is Joshua, right as he's about to go into the promised land, wants to know in this vision that he has, are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? Because he sees this vision of a man that has a sword that is drawn. And the commander says, neither. I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. Um, so what do you want me to do? And the commander says, well, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. 
Now, if we could keep that perspective in mind as we move ahead, that is the same problem as we move into the 20th century. The idea of we are on God's side, um, or let me rewind that. God is on our side rather than we are on God's side is a critical, very critical thing to keep in mind. So when we see this developing, here Joshua is told, take your shoes off or your sandals off. The place that you are standing is holy. In other words, respect where you are and embrace who you see. But the key question is, are you on our side? or are you on the enemy side? So just kind of hold that in the back of your mind, because I think that is the key question that often comes into play when people perceive that they are God's people. There is the assumption that God is on our side all the time. That's just a, a, a general assumption that people have. And, you, you know, during the Crusades, that was certainly true. And uh, even in, in some of the um, terroristic activities that we've seen that most recently in our own lifetime, 9-11, is believing that God is on the, the side of the attacker, the terrorist or whatever. Okay. So does that make sense to everybody so far? Mm -hmm. Any questions there? So let's take a look at these two columns and then we'll move ahead. For conservative white evangelicals, the good news of the Christian gospel became linked to a staunch commitment to several things, patriarchal authority, gender difference, and Christian nationalism that are all intertwined within white racial identity. I don't think we often think about it that way, but what, as I unfold this before us tonight, maybe the way to summarize it is evangelical has always kind of stood for the straight white American Jesus. Does that make sense? The straight white American Jesus is who uh, is on our side. That, he's, that, that Jesus is fighting for us. Secondly, by the early 20th century, evangelical Christians, because of the developments of the industrial revolution, began to see masculinity as a problem that needed to be corrected. And I'll explain how that happens here in a second. Here's some people I want you to keep in mind as we move through this study tonight. There are certain icons that become kind of the influence of the culture in general and Christianity, in particular evangelical Christianity, um, very early on. And the four that we're going to look at tonight, there's more than this, but the four that we're going to look at tonight is Teddy Roosevelt, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, and John Wayne. And thus the uh, title of this book, Jesus and John Wayne, is the idea about how men perceived what a man is really like was kind of summarized in this icon, movie icon, John Wayne, who was always the man's man who fought the savages, the Indians, and his military movies uh, fought the enemies of, uh, of the United States. Okay, let me stop there before we move on. Any thoughts? 
Okay, so here we go. Let's break this down a little bit and uh, we'll go from there. So how did, um, how did there happen to come about a crisis of a masculinity image? It, it, it's related in many ways to the industrial revolution. So when you have um, an uh, agricultural agrarian type of culture, um, it's built upon hard work, it's built upon the land, all those things early in, in our history, uh, conquering new lands, moving westward, all those types of things. But by the late 1800s, uh, something began to take place. Industrialization began to change how individuals earned their living. They began to punch a clock. And there was a large influx of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe that began arriving to our shores and white native born Protestant men um, felt that they were kind of losing their identity a little bit by this. Now, what's interesting is this cast of characters that's gonna reclaim this identity ranges uh, from an original cowboy president to a baseball player turned preacher um, to a singing cowboy and a dashing young evangelist. So it's an interesting mix here. But I want to talk just for a second about industrialism and in immigration and how, it's, how it really changed the nature of this new world that was being established. And, and so we're not going to take a, a lot of time here, but I think it's helpful to keep in mind. So industrialization, what is that? Well, it's quite complex. And the simplest way to say it is the way we make money changed, the way we made things changed from things being made by hand to things being made in factories. And that change really began in Great Britain and it kind of migrated into the United States and even parts of Western Europe. So what happened is farmland, uh, rural land, people began to leave it and they began to move into the cities where factories were being built, where there were industrial towns and factories. So I'll just give you an example from my own childhood. So when I was growing up in Akron, the rubber industry owned the town, okay? So you had Firestone and Goodyear and Goodrich and Cyberlane and all of these rubber factories. Um, and what happened was the needed workers for all of those rubber factories did not come from Akron and Cleveland. Many people from rural parts of West Virginia and Pennsylvania migrated to this area where they could obtain work and feed their families and so forth. So I've said this before, I know I have, but I'll say it again. So the joke was when I was growing up, what is the capital of West Virginia? Akron, Ohio, because there were so many people that had, and my grandfather was one who moved up from Parkersburg, West Virginia uh, to Akron and worked at Goodyear and his dad worked at Firestone. And um, 
And so here's what's happening. There's a change of, uh, of a way of making a living. There's a change of landscape. Now cities are becoming more prominent and it's not just all rural farmland, that type of thing. Does that make sense to everybody? That, that begins to change identity a little bit because it's no longer uh, necessarily having 10 kids because the more kids you have, you have the more hands you have to work the farm. Now, um, families are getting smaller. And as they're getting smaller, obviously um, that begins to change kind of the nature of our, um, our, our uh, you know, the nature of our culture a little bit. Any thoughts there? The other one is immigration. So um, the United States experienced several waves of immigration, uh, obviously in the colonial era, but then also in particular from the 1880s to 1920, and individual states used to regulate immigrants coming into the United States until 1892 when Ellis Island became the first uh, immigration station, federal immigration state uh, station. Take a look at this uh, date here, 1907. Uh, approximately 1.3 million people entered the country in 1907 through Ellis Island. And of course, a lot of our own ancestors, uh, including uh, some of mine, uh, the Poza family came through Ellis Island and uh, immigrated as well. In 1917, interestingly enough, just, just as a side note, Congress enacted a legislation requiring immigrants over 16 years of age to pass a literacy test before they could enter the United States. And then in the early 1920s, there were certain quotas. They could only accept so many into the United States. So there was a cap to it. So I think that has kind of continued on into our own day and age. So immigration and industrialization, that's all I wanna say about it, but it kind of changed a lot of the landscape of the United States history and its culture, but it also changed the perception of masculinity. And when that began to take place, what you had then are certain individuals that started to, um, to capture the attention of the American public. And the first one was a guy by the name of Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt um, was nicknamed the Cowboy of the Dakotas. Now, what you don't know is he was picked on as a weakling as a kid. He developed this real kind of hard... Uh, nature to himself. And that's kind of way, the way he projected himself uh, even before he became president in 1901. And he basically would be on the frontier of a new kind of man. And uh, he fought in the Spanish-American War, which most of us don't know what that was really about. But it was our war with Spain over Cuba. And, you know, there's a long history there. But he developed um, some volunteer 
soldiers that would fight in this war that were called the Rough Riders. And um, these Rough Riders that he chose to be a part of this militia um, were kind of the manifestation of this masculine ideal of kind of a frontier rifleman, a, skill, a skilled horseman and Texas Ranger type thing. He also kind of uh, got some of the elite athletes to be a part of it, which included quarterbacks as well as um, equestrian type individuals, uh, that type of thing. But what happened was he was fashioning a, a more rugged masculinity. And of course, with that came violence as well by fashioning this violent masculinity. And it's starting to be injected into the national politics um, as he became president. What we find is that image of a man that wore wigs you, you're talk, you know what I'm talking about, the Victorian uh, imagery, all of that seemed to be insufficient for the needs of that era of our country. So now there's this fashioning of this ruggedness. Let me stop there. Do you have some thoughts or questions there? So here's a picture of Teddy Roosevelt. He lived from 1858 to 1919. This is one of those famous uh, pictures of him on a horseback, um, dressed as a soldier, that type of thing. Uh, you know, he becomes president and a lot of that becomes part of the influence of this new, um, uh, this new era uh, that we are entering into, into the 20th century. Second name. Billy Sunday. Have any of you heard of Billy Sunday at all? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was a professional baseball player at one time. And he was an individual that felt a call uh, to ministry. So he becomes this preacher, but he doesn't become an intellectual um type of uh, preacher, he becomes this rugged, in-your-face type of individual and kind of a muscular Christianity. So the way he preached was in people's face, and he used to make altar calls, uh, calling people to come forward, and for men at the time uh, to sign up for the draft that type of thing. So he began to combine in many ways, uh, not just uh, Christianity, but nationalism, okay? this It's beginning to be wedded. So in 1917, World War I um, begins to make this militancy part of his message. Um, Billy Sunday would often uh, condemn people that were draft dodgers or pacifists. And as an evangelist for war, that, I mean, it wasn't just an evangelist for the gospel. It was an evangelist for war. He began to do really theatrics. 
he would stand on top of the pulpit, he'd wave the American flag, all, and all of this is beginning to be uh, absorbed by the national pub, uh, public, the American public. Now that's a real man, okay? And that's what Christianity should be like as well. So what he did though was interesting. He had the ability to market this type of Christianity. And he used some techniques that advertising firms use to craft a particular way of looking at it. But now what's important here to keep in mind is he would brand this type of faith as the old time religion, okay? So we're, we're in the early 1900s, He's talking about old time religion. Okay, well, what is he going back to? Well, the only thing that I can think of is that at least in what he's doing in terms of nationalism would take you back, not to the first century. The first century church were uh, nonviolent. Um, they would often give themselves up in martyrdom before they would fight. And they believed that was the teaching of Jesus. So what would he be going back to? Well, probably, I don't know this for sure because I haven't read enough about Billy Sunday. I would think the Crusades would be a major influence upon him. What we find though, is this is what's really important, really important. He began to stress what he called the plain reading of the Bible. Now, what is the plain reading of the Bible? It's reading it literally, okay? There's what it says, and that's what we are to do. There's no place for metaphor. There's no place for figures of speech. There's no place for what was the context or the culture. It's just taking it straightforward. Well, if you do that, you've got a lot of material to work with in the Old Testament. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of violence and a lot of killing in the Old Testament. So taking that literal approach, um, he begins to fashion what is called the fundamentals of the faith. And out of that will come uh, a term that I, I know we've all heard, fundamentalism, okay? So certain things that you hold to, fundamentalism um, was being fashioned as part of the identity of the day. Now, what's interesting about fundamentalism is it always needs an enemy. For it to thrive, it always needs an enemy that is threatening our way of life. So this idea of fundamentalism will continue to evolve and it will become the entire secular culture that's our enemy or it will be certain aspects of um, uh, the, the advancement of women's rights or civil rights or um, LGBTQ rights. The, all these things are enemies because what does an enemy do? Through the use of fear, it unites people and keeps them motivated, okay? So fundamentalism emerged from an, a war context, and it was 
linked to patriotism and it was very combative. And if you know some very strict fundamentalist Christians, you'll know that there's a, they're a little bit cantankerous at times. They're always wanting to fight about something. Uh, and so that has even merged, you know, it has progressed even into our own day and age. So what they did though, and this goes back to this modern advertising technique, the fundamentalists that began to network together through the influence of Billy Sunday began to create a whole host of things that would carry forth their agenda. So you have a host of Bible schools, different types of denominations, missions, organizations, publishing houses that are being formed. So now the message is, is being spread. Does that make sense to everybody? The entire influence of this is now within reach of people. So um, that begins to shape their outlook on Christianity, primarily with Billy Sunday, and in particular, kind of a more masculine um, outlook on men. It won't come to a, head, to a head until a little bit later, but um, he begins to plant the seed for that a little bit. That makes sense? Now, it's all couched into this passage I read out of Joshua chapter 5. God is on our side. God is on our side. This is what God is fighting for. Just keep that in the back of your mind. So here's Billy Sunday. And uh, it was an era where um, you can see the American flag draped over his pulpit there. Uh, notice who is in the audience. What do you notice about that? They're all men. Do any of them look like farmers? No, they're all dressed in suits and ties. Okay. Now that was part of the culture of that day, but nonetheless, that's, that was a lot of, um, that's where his, his power base came from. Mm. That makes sense. Okay. Personality number three. Well, let me back up. Uh, before I introduce the next personality. So how many of you have ever heard of the National Association of e Evangelicals? Okay, NAE for short. So a group of fundamentalist leaders. So, you know, we go back again to Billy Sunday. This all starts right here, uh, all the way back in the 1920s. But by 1942, it has grown and fundamentalist leaders um, come together and some of them began to think that this fundamentalism has gone a little bit too far. So they don't abandon the fundamentals, but they begin to back off a little bit and they cho chose a new word that is still with us to this day, evangelicalism. And their choice of the word evangelical is very strategic because evangelism is the idea of winning over other people, right? So it's a more, it's a more uh, moderate version of fundamentalism, but yet that base is still there. Does that make sense to everybody? So evangelicalism came to uh, 
really project more of a forward-looking alternative to this idea of militant separatist fundamentalism. So in its original form, fundamentalism saw everything, every, if you don't agree with us, you're our enemy, okay? Now, evangelicalism opens its arms a little bit more. And that's where we come in to the third personality, Billy Graham. What was one of the objections or criticisms of Billy Graham? That he was too accepting of, of other people, okay? Uh, in terms of um, different denominations and toward the end of his life, even Catholicism as well. But uh, they felt it was important to, uh, to broaden the, um, to broaden the scope if we were going to actually carry out the Great Commission, which is to bring people to Christ. So what they did is they began to organize and they felt that the way to evangelize the nation and reach millions of people would to use a new technology to do it. And that is national radio broadcasts. So they began to use radio as a means. And when you think about a lot of the influences of religious radio in our own area here, WCRF is one example of it, that it's religious programming all day, every day, whether it's music or teaching or whatever. Billy Graham helped make, helped make that possible. So part of this rebranding effort came about because here is this guy that is six foot two. He has this tremendous stature and he's good looking and he is white. Okay. He has this kind of Scottish genes and Nordic looks about him. He was athletic. And when he began preaching, he used a lot of athletic and military metaphors. And what he was communicating subtly was that his faith did not conflict with this strong masculinity. Okay. And in the fall of 1949, so on Sundays, we're talking a little bit about night hikes, kind of periods of life where we kind of go through what St. John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul. He had his own experience like that in 1949. He had some doubts about um, the authority of the scriptures and that type of thing. And even though he had certain intellectual difficulties, he set those aside. And what he said, and he draw, goes back to this literalism that was introduced by fundamentalism, that he's just going to completely surrender to the authority of God's word. And um, even if he has intellectual question marks about it, he was just going to take it as it is. And that's the way he was going to preach it. So here he is. He lived a long life, had tremendous influence. He lived from 1918 to 2018, and he had the ear of many presidents. So now you find it's not just a religion, 
politics are also being combined under the influence of Billy Graham. He began to do crusades. Um, most importantly here, I want you to notice this here uh, at the bottom of the screen. He became a radio personality and over 700 stations carried his program by, um, and he was also uh, the initial influencer of a magazine that kind of became the uh, cornerstone of Christianity. And it was entitled Christianity Today. I know we have all heard of Christianity Today. Let me, before I get there though, what he began to do though, is became, became uh, this, he became uh, aware that there are enemies out there that need to be fought. Now, the enemy that he chose to fight against that was part of the threat of his preaching a lot of times early on was communism. So communism was the religion of the devil. And here's where that Joshua 5 passage comes back into play. He felt it was clear that America was on God's side and that communism was of, of Satan itself. So with this in mind, he began to suggest that the only way we could stay in good standing with God is if we clean up our, our, uh, our culture and our country. So he believed that a nation is only as strong as her home. And he felt that the primary attack, not only was communism, but the attack on the American home was in jeopardy as well. So now this is really, really, really important because he had such tremendous influence. Because he took the Bible literally, rather than understanding that this might be a reflection of how they thought in that particular day, um, he became a very patriarchal uh, influence on Christianity. He believed that, you know, it says in Genesis 3 that there was a curse upon Eve because she sinned and led Adam to sin. Therefore, women are to be under man's rule, and wives are to be submissive to uh, their husband's authority. He added uh, this twist, though, by not only this religious gender role, but he began to influence this wedding together of Christianity and politics, where it became Christian nationalism. So now here we have <clears throat> these type of things that are being said. America has always been a Christian nation. Have you ever heard that? America has always been a Christian nation. Okay, let's define Christianity. Um, are you talking about it as a civil religion? Sure. Are you talking about it being the teachings of Jesus influencing the greater culture? No. Just look at the Trail of Tears, look at what was done to the Native Americans, look at how the, the whole country was built on slavery, that type of thing. So it depends upon how you're using the word uh, Christian here. So 
all of this becomes a part of the vocabulary. And so Graham begins, and let me, let me preface this by saying, so you understand, there is so much good that Billy Graham did, okay? But what is not seen is the influence he had that began to merge Christianity and nationalism, okay? That's what I'm trying to get us across here today, because next week, you're, what we're going to see is all of this comes rushing forward to the point that we see um, people that are saying we need to go back to the way it was, that you have Proud Boys and other groups like that, that take this masculine imagery and begin to storm the Capitol and do things like that. But that's for next week. Notice what he does though. He lends his support to different institutions. So he helped form uh, or at least influence Wheaton College, which was the standard bearer of, of Christianity for many, many years. Fuller Seminary as well. National Religious Broadcasters, Campus Crusade for Christ, Young Life and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. That is that's unbelievable, isn't it? You want to talk about a massive influence that has come out from Billy Graham either throwing his support toward these or help raising funds or other uh, logistical or administrative things that he helped with. Uh, it's it's mind-boggling. It really is mind-boggling. So let me stop there for a moment. Do you have questions or comments? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, you're not at the end yet, though, really. No. But, but I don't understand in the uh, angel of the Lord with the sword. Yeah. He never told Joshua he was on his side. No, he did not. No, he didn't. See, I think the point of that passage, um, or at least the commentary of the angel of the Lord, is you take your shoes off and don't worry about whether I'm on your side or their side. The more important question is, are you on my side, the angel of the Lord? It's not if I'm on your side or not. That's a strange pat a paragraph, Brenda. It's a, it's a real interesting paragraph. So it depends upon at least in the NIV translation, it talks about uh, the commander of the Lord. Uh, I don't know, because I didn't check. Uh, does the King James Version um, translate that the angel of the Lord? Do you know? Does, or I, I don't have a King James Version in front of me, but, but if, it, if it is the angel of the Lord, the assumption might be here wherever there's the appearance of the angel of the Lord, that that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Okay. So we don't really know what James, going. it says, I'm captain of the host of the Lord. Okay. Captain of the host of the Lord. Okay. So thus the NIV says commander of the Lord's army, but, but nonetheless, a lot of, Bible commentators 
suggests that this was Christ that made a pre-incarnate appearance uh, to Joshua. I don't know that we can be certain about that one way or the other, but this very mysterious paragraph is fascinating in light of the fact that it is inserted here uh, right before the invasion of Jericho. And probably what's going on here, Brenda, is that's put there as a way of suggesting that Joshua, because he fell in homage to this commander of the Lord's army, was in good standing with God when they went in into Jericho. Um, so in other words, if there, if there was a lot of life that was lost, it was done with God's blessing, that type of thing. Um, so that, that's my take on why that paragraph probably is placed where it's placed here, right before uh, the Jericho invasion. But I don't know if you have some other thoughts, but you're right. There's no identification of who this individual is. So if it's not the Lord, is it some type of intimidating, masculine, uh, you know, kind of a, not Goliath, but a Goliath-like figure that intimidates Joshua to the point where Joshua says, are you for them or are you for us? I don't know. I, I'm not, I, I don't think we can answer that, but it's an interesting paragraph nonetheless. Follow up on that? Okay. Okay, well, I'm gonna introduce you to one more individual tonight. So John Wayne is portrayed in film as the heroic cowboy soldier. And he would capture the hearts of the American people, but the affinity that the American culture had with John Wayne was not based on theology. It was based on the image that he projected of a man's man. Now, what's fascinating is how the evangelical and fundamentalist uh, Christian movement elevated this man in many ways of saying, that's what a man looks like. That's the type of stature that he has. But the problem is, John Wayne never claimed to know Christ. Um, he was a poster child uh, that actually was anti-family values. He was married three times. He was twice divorced. He was a chain smoker, and he was a hard drinker. Does this stuff sound familiar? <laughs> okay. So what happened back in... 2016 wasn't a first-time experience. The evangelical and fundamentalist church threw their weight behind a guy that actually is the antithesis of some of the values that they fight for. But he had great influence. And these film roles that John Wayne had kind of became a mythology of what a strong American man looks like. All of these films that he made had usually had this genre, good guy, bad guy, white hat, black hat. And that's kind of how America began to look at the world. Good guys, 
versus bad guys. And even to this day and age, when we deploy troops like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was, it's always been projected, we're going to fight the bad guys, all right? Okay, yeah, the terrorists are bad guys, but that doesn't mean the whole Iraqi and Afghanistan culture of women and children are bad. Yet that's how it's often portrayed. We're good guys, they're bad guys. Certain vernacular began to enter the American vocabulary. Saddle up, lock and load became kind of phrases that were being used during John Wayne's era. And um, as far back as the 1940s, he was a staunch Republic, fascinating. And he began to, there began to be a merging of masculinity with conservative activism. We're right. gonna get rid of the bad guys. We're gonna, you know, um, we're going to protect our, our country. We're gonna protect our culture. But the hardest part of the whole thing is understanding how that influenced Christianity. So what happens in many respects is now, are we going to listen to Jesus or are we going to listen to John Wayne? As a Christian, which is more important, the Sermon on the Mount or, you know, is it the film Iwo Jima? I mean, are you following what I'm saying? What is going to influence us the most if we claim to be followers of Christ? So anyways, John Wayne is the last personality Here's what he looked like. Obviously, you know what he looked like and his dates. He lived from uh, 1907 to 1979. So he's been gone a while. Um, but it's interesting that uh, this book, Jesus and John Wayne, basically begins to construct for us how this influence of this movie star, uh, how this influence shaped culture. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just making an observation here. We are still living with the effects of a reality TV star becoming president. Okay, and it, 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 not a politician, um, but someone that entered into the uh, fray of politics and tapped into a desire to recapture a strong America and strong masculinity and make America great again. And all of this phrasing and it captured who? The evangelical church. That's who got Donald Trump elected was the evangelical church. And just like John Wayne, he's a poster child of the very opposite, supposedly, of what evangelicals stand for. But now what we are seeing is evangelicalism is not just a type of Christianity, it's a political movement. And we're going to see that next week when I introduce to you some names that probably have shaped some of your thinking. And I know that when I show you the connection 
to Jim Dobson, you're going to go, oh my gosh. And we tried to raise our kids on his material. Um, so it, but, but that's, but that's for next week. Okay. Um, so what I want to do tonight is all, basically summarize this in uh, this way. So fundamentalism was too extreme for evangelicalism. But as the history of evangelicalism continued, it's making stronger right turns toward Republican uh, politics. And here's an interesting thing. Billy Graham was a lifelong Democrat. Did you know that? He was a lifelong Democrat, but he began to realign his political affiliations during the days of the civil rights, the war in Vietnam, and family values. Now, because he took the Bible literally, do you think Billy Graham was in favor or against civil rights? He should have been. Well, he should have been, but he wasn't. So he didn't embrace the civil rights movement uh, with as much gusto as you would think because the Bible never condemns slavery. You can't find a verse that where the Bible condemns slavery. So if you're going to take it literally, what, what Graham, I think, began to do is because of his close proximity to presidents over many years, he began to signal to the evangelical voters that their faith needs to be aligned with a certain type of politics too. And that began to emerge together. And the idea of America as a Christian nation is something that is kind of baked into this whole influence rather than seeing it as a country that allows for freedom of religion. We are free to be a Christian, but now instead of that freedom for people who choose to be Buddhist or Muslim, mm -hmm. atheist or agnostic or whatever it may be, there is this desire because America is a Christian nation that we drive out that which is non-Christian, okay? So there's this connection between God and country and the use of military might. And let me also say this, I'm very thankful for our military. I'm very thankful for their sacrifice. I'm very thankful for their willingness to, to protect our country. However, however, when militarism is connected to nationalism or more in particular Christian nationalism, we got to double back and we got to say, okay, was that was was intended by the original founding fathers? And why has it gone this way? And why are why have we always been at war? There are only a few years in the history of our country where we have not been at war in one way or the other. We're not Switzerland, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And we're not Canada either. 
what um, that we always seem to exercise our power and our might to create a world that we have control of. So what happened with Billy Graham here is interesting. He began signaling to Republicans that they could woo the evangelical vote by aligning with evangelical views on morality and foreign policy. And that's gonna come into a little bit sharper focus next week as we kind of close off some of these main figures that leads us into the postmodern era. Many evangelicals found it hard to accept that the sin of racism ran deep through the nation's history. That's one thing that we have denied. But if you read, you'll find that there's still lots of racism that is baked into our country. But if you say that aloud, some people will say that you're unpatriotic, okay? So what happens in all of this is there becomes kind of like cover-ups at times, I think, to, um, we don't want to appear as, we're, as if we're trying to control politics. All we're trying to do is fight for religious freedom. Mm, there's more to it than that, okay? Um, there's political power that's being sought. There's money that's being sought in a lot of this stuff too. So I think that's where I want to finish for tonight. I've given you a lot of stuff. Does it make sense? You don't have to agree with it, but does it make sense to you how over the last hundred years, how this has baked into our national identity and in particular, what it means to be a man's man, what a real man looks like, being strong, and the use of either violence or uh, hatred as a way of controlling uh, that. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Well, I just think that you know, in a lot of cases, like the John Wayne example, probably many people did not know about John Wayne's personal life and his personal beliefs, but what they did know was not necessarily what, what he determined it was what the people who, the, the movie producers and others shaped him, shaped that, that yeah, impact. Right. Not, him, not, not him personally, really. I mean, yeah, some, to some extent personally, but really he was, you know, he, he was on screen, which is what people saw based on what producers and movie writers and directors wanted him to per, portray. And so, and, and I would say in many of the movies, yes, he was rough and tough, but I think there were many good qualities that were brought out in many of the movie. Bravery, humility, I mean, man who shot liberty balance, you know, he was just kind of humble. Loyalty, humility, different things. Humility. So there were a lot of quality attributes that, that you know, people wanted to see in their children and families that were really, and in themselves, that were, were brought out in those movies also. But again, I think in many cases, whether it's John Wayne or some other actors, what you saw was not necessarily what they felt personally. It was what they were acting to do, you know, what they were acting out. That's true on in any TV personality or film personality. Um, they're a part of a whole network of people that are shaping their image. Uh, and, you know, that's true to our very day. Uh, some of our more popular stars and, and 
the image that they portray might even be contradictory to what they personally believe or act upon or whatever it may be. I think you're right there. And hey, I'll be the first to admit, if I have a choice of any film that I want to watch, <laughs> my favorite genre is always action movies where it's always good guy versus bad guy. Okay. okay. <laughs> it should be Hallmark, as he says. Okay. <laughs> Only at Christmas time. I'll give you that. Okay. <laughs> but my point is, I love that as much as anyone because there's a certain energy that you feed off of that. And, and are there good points to take away? Yeah. But there's also some danger as well. Um, you know, and we see even the current debate about um, gun legislation. Uh, you know, oh, a lot of it is video games and TV and film influence upon these young people and stuff like that as a diversion to, to, to not actually talk about the problem that there are more guns in the country than there are people. Um, so, you know, especially assault rifles and stuff like that, that take out. Uh, so we, we can see that it's even being used. How do I want to put this? No. In a way that can be to the advantage. Oh yeah. All these violent games and films as have influenced our, um, our children and that they're acting out and all that type of stuff. Yeah, maybe, but you know, there's more to it than that too. So, um, yeah, but I agree with you, bud. I think that, you know, is this to the core of who John Wayne is? I don't think any of us really know. We're not in John Wayne's skin, but that's the way he came across on the film. And some of that was very good. And some of it, some of it was very subtle, I think. It's shaping, you know, when I grew up, you know, I don't know, I don't think boys do this anymore, but one of the things that, that when I grew up, a, a lot of the imaginary play that you could actually play with yourself, uh, you didn't need somebody else there, was little figures of military uh, plastic yeah. military and plastic cowboys and Indians. And you could play out in your mind, this good guy, bad guy scenario where they're fighting each other. Am I alone on that? Or I mean, Oh no, that happened. Yeah. You know, well, that, that was coming out, of, coming out of world war two also. So yeah, that's sense. right. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. But you yeah. know, at that time, that's just part of who we were. And I'm not saying that's, evil i'm just saying that's part of the culture of growing up in the 60s too because vietnam was going on uh, and that type of thing too you're going to say something shelly yeah you also just passingly mentioned racism in the u.s that's been around forever i yeah. mean and it was also brought in my family came from Germany, my grandmother's family. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if she was born here or if she was born on the boat on the way over or in Germany. Uh -huh. um, but I know a couple of her brothers were born over there. And her oldest brother, Otto, was very, her, their last name was Wendelberg. 
he added an E to the end of it so that no one would think he was Jewish. And I remember as a very little child finding what I thought was a ghost outfit in our attic. <laughs> and it wasn't a ghost outfit. Oh, really? Ku Klux Klan? Yep. So, yeah. you so, know, uh, he'd love these Proud Boys probably. Uh-huh. But yeah. it, it's been there. I mean, my grandmother was born in 1897, so. Well, and I don't, you know, when you see certain things, you don't unsee them. And so I think one thing that happens when, when we begin to enlarge our thinking on certain things, we go back in our past and we go, ooh. Mm -hmm. My relatives were pretty racist. Yes. You know, uh, some of the things that they said about black people is just not right. You know, different things like that. And you tend not to think, oh, no, no, no. My, my relatives weren't racist and stuff like that. That was just, you know, just part of the way they communicated. But then when you begin to go, oh, my gosh, you see all these connections, just like you said, Shelly. Yeah, that wasn't a ghost costume. No, you know, you go, oh my gosh, it, it was much stronger than I realized at the time. You know that type of thing. So, other comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what Esty was saying, I know you can't hear somebody farther down the table, um, that, that the point here is to see the connection, not just to what was going on in the culture, but how fundamentalism and evangelicalism began to connect to it. And I think that, you know, that plays an important part, as we'll see next week, of why these groups stood for what they stood for and what detrimental effects it continues to have in many circles of the church, uh, that type of thing. Anybody else have a, any thoughts or questions or comments? Any pushback on it? Do you see it differently? I'm just giving to you kind of what I'm what I'm trying to piece together from things that I'm reading and, and that type of thing. And I, I think some of it obviously is connected. Uh, whether all of it is or not, that has to be played out. But I mean, um, but there's connections there that here I am. I gave my life to the Lord in 1975. 1975. I, I never saw any of this stuff. And I had eight years of a Bible and seminary education, never brought it out, never connected it, never, never was part of my education. Yeah, yeah, they teach a lot of times the things that are part of their system and that's and you don't get exposure to other things. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that's where we'll end our study tonight. And um, 
I am thankful that you joined us and I hope that you have a good rest of the week and uh, we'll see you here on Sunday or you'll see us online later down in Florida. And uh, remember we are um, this Sunday, First Christian Church is having their very last service as a church upstairs in the in the uh, sanctuary. Uh, so as they close down their church, um, we're we're meeting downstairs here in July and August because it's a lot cooler. But we need to be quiet as as we come in because their their service will be, still be going on. So I just want to give you a reminder on that. So, all right. Thank All right. you. You're welcome. Take care. Righty. Good night. Bye. Bye.